This is a Counterspin Media presentation. The Samantha Edwards Report. Ah, smart cities, the way of the future. Clean, green, and so convenient. Everything just right there in the palm of your hand. You may know them by the name of 20-minute neighborhoods or 20-minute cities. Oh, I mean 15-minute cities. <laughs> Sorry, it changed. changed a while back. Oh, okay, 10-minute cities. Right, okay, wait, what? You gotta be kidding me. Five-minute cities? Well, this is changing really fast. I don't like this. What are they gonna be like? And where are they gonna be? Especially here in New Zealand. Well, I can tell you, it's not just gonna be Hamilton, and it's not just gonna be Wellington, and it's not just gonna be Christchurch. Because New Zealand is the first country in the whole world to have every one of its city councils signed up to the Smart City Scheme. Yay! <laughs> So it's time we learn what they're truly about because they're coming in like a flood through more and more geoengineered weather disasters and the false climate change narrative. We are about to be ushered into the age of managed retreat into resilient and sustainable cities, the age of globalist tyranny like never before. I know this video is quite long, but there's information we need to know about what the reality of smart cities is. And even in this time frame, I'll barely be able to skim the surface. You're in coalition with the far right. I can tell you one thing, your government certainly doesn't intend on discussing the truth about smart cities with you. They couldn't give a toss about full disclosure or getting your consent for any of it. In fact, they know that if you knew the reality, you'd do all you could do to prevent it. So, seeing they don't want to give us the truth, let's go have a look for ourselves, shall we? Questions loom over who will foot the bill of New Zealand's climate adaptation plan. The government's unveiled a framework for dealing with the impact of rising seas, increasing heat and extreme weather. It will outline plans for abandoning areas no longer safe to live in and a funding model for the transition. Co-leader of the Green Party, James Shaw, has recently presented what's called the Climate Adaption Plan. He said that he hopes it will become legislated within the next few months. A major focus of the Climate Adaption Plan, also known as the National Adaption Plan, is what's been called Managed Retreat. This is the term that's been given to the plan to relocate rural dwellers to smart city locations. And so one of the things in the Adaptation Plan is that we're going to become more directive uh, about where we're able to, uh, to build in the future. Extensive Resource Management Act reform is underway in New Zealand and James Shaw tells us that managed retreat laws will extend this reform much further. He says that these changes will affect up to 50% of New Zealanders, in particular those who live on or near the coast. These laws will not only apply to future building but also to existing homes and businesses. After the devastating Cyclone Gabrielle hit our nation, Jack Tame talked with Grant Robertson on NZQ&A. 
Unusually, Mr Robertson didn't seem too interested in talking about emissions reductions this time, as it appears that that phrase is very much last year. But what he did seem far more excited to talk about was the subject of resilient cities and managed retreat. This two words New Zealanders are going to get used to hearing over the next few years is managed retreat. We have to understand where communities can be made more resilient, where we can do things to the infrastructure so they can stay where they are, and other communities and neighbourhoods where actually we have to accept it's no longer appropriate. And now we're promised even more extensive resource management system reform via the Severe Weather Emergency Recovery Legislation Bill, which is also on its way. I move that the Severe Weather Emergency Recovery Legislation Bill be now read a first time. I intend to move that the bill be reported to the House by the 5th of April 2023. This bill will grant emergency powers to the government to determine a weather event as a severe emergency and then take whatever actions they deem necessary in response to that emergency. Like COVID emergency powers, but this time pertaining to weather. Immediately after the cyclone hit Hawke's Bay, James Shaw's message was given centre stage. The very next day, he delivered an emotive speech to Parliament about how we must hasten the Climate Adaption Plan into legislation, complete with a skillfully inserted Jacinda-style manipulation in regards to the NRA. I have to say that as I stand here today, I'm, I, I struggle to find words to uh, express um, what I'm thinking and feeling about this uh, particular crisis. I don't think I've ever felt as sad or as angry about the lost decades that we spent bickering and arguing about whether climate change was real or not, whether it was caused by humans or not, whether it was bad or not, whether we should do something about it uh, or not, because it is clearly uh, here now. Uh, and if we do not act, it will get worse. I have to say, um, I've been recalling actually a, a quote from a, a different time about a different crisis. The era of procrastinations, uh, of half measures, of soothing and baffling expedients, of delays is coming to its close. In its place, we are entering a period of consequences. And there will be people who say, you know, just as the National Rifle Association of the United States does about shootings over there, it's too soon uh, to talk about these things, but we are standing in it right now. This is a climate change related uh, event. We need to stop making excuses for inaction. We cannot put our heads in the sand when the beach is flooding. We must act now. But this is not even a Green Party idea. The term managed retreat is a term first introduced by, believe it or not, the World Economic Forum. It's their idea, and just like all their other policies, the leaders of the world are obeying its requirements at whatever the cost. There are many articles on their forum that speak about managed retreat. Now nations all over the world are executing managed retreats, always presenting it as if it's a response thought up by that nation's own government when it's nothing more than a corporate globalist scheme being executed all over the world for globalist purposes. Managed retreat is simply the mechanism being used to move people into resilient cities. But what is a resilient city? I mean, I appreciate the Wellington City Council telling us that Resilient Cities Network is owned by the deeply corrupt Rockefeller Foundation, but why is this lady holding up a sign that pushes globalist ideology 
I mean, wouldn't managed retreat into resilient cities be more about things like, I don't know, <laughs> raised housing to protect from floods and earthquake-proof buildings? Well, apparently no, because a resilient city is a smart city. They're one and the same. A city that's digitally empowered to survive, adapt and thrive. <laughs> Whatever. It's got nothing to do with surviving, thriving, resilience. Nothing at all. It's a pack of lies. Take a look at any smart city technology and you'll see that they're all about surveillance, tracking, and facilitating future lockdowns and controlling humanity. Smart city technologies are not about the environment. <laughs> and getting you within the confines of a smart city through managed retreat ushered in by geo-engineered weather events is being cloaked as protecting you from the climate, protection of the climate, and also about your convenience. But it's all one giant scam. Let's take a little skim through this article about managed retreat from the New Zealand Herald a couple of weeks after Cyclone Gabrielle. A top Kiwi environmental planner, Christina Hanna, says she prefers the term remaking of space which is another buzz phrase for this scheme. They love rewords, it seems, like remaking, reimagining, rethinking, resilience, retreat, relocate, reset. <laughs> Basically, redoing everything and removing human rights in the process. Anyway, <laughs> as it explains here, managed retreat will involve buyouts, land swaps, rebuild restrictions, land use control, and compulsory property acquisitions, aka government theft of property. And don't you just love the arrogant way they describe dislocating people from their land as challenging? And how they describe this as something that the people are asking for because of climate change. Then they double down on their manipulation, giving us a random example of how Maori are the example for us here because back in 1850, uh, there was a chief who shifted his people because of a flood. Just to clarify, we are not asking for managed retreat or smart cities. That's a lie. In fact, it's quite the opposite. People all over the world are vehemently expressing their opposition, actually, and being completely overridden by globalist-controlled governments there's token references here about how Maori may have their rights upheld, but not a single mention of Pākehā having any rights whatsoever. I'm not sure that that's not just a little racist. And then at the end of the article, it tells us that James Shaw's climate adaption plan is going to take care of the details of it all. No public consultation will be necessary here. And then it finishes with saying, this propaganda has been brought to you by the New Zealand government, basically by revealing how this woman is funded extensively by the government to say what they tell her to say. That's how science works, apparently. Truth, money, truth, money. And did you know, as it states here on this article on the Smart Cities World website, New Zealand's actually the first nation in the whole world to have all its local councils join the Smart Cities Council so it's not a matter of which of our cities are going to be developed into smart cities. Apparently, we're going to be an entire country of smart cities, whether we like it or not. It's all in keeping with our WEF AI pilot project nation status and its clear description of how New Zealand is going to be used as a pioneering nation for the new era of AI technologies, particularly tracking and surveillance and all its corresponding legislations. These white papers here describe what they call soft laws and also hard laws, and also enforcement of new AI procedures and policies. 
It talks about how punitive measures should be taken against those who don't comply with every aspect of their lives being monitored, reported and controlled by means of electronic surveillance. Despite what you may hear from our globalist government, managed retreat is nothing more than the term assigned to a worldwide operation of monumental magnitude to initiate the globalist agenda of herding the masses into small and controlled zones. These zones will be more effective in their control if they are away from the coast. The coastlines present many threats to this agenda. Access to food from the sea, water that could be desalinated, as well as entry and exit points which would be difficult to police. A coastline that's been cleansed of peasants would free up the elites to bring in and out whatever they choose to without the knowledge of those peasants and their annoying objections. I imagine the coast would also be prime real estate for the elites, especially once things are in place and the geoengineering can cease and the climate change facade can finally be dropped. These new safe and protected areas are being presented as smart cities. But just as the term managed retreat is a form of neuro-linguistic programming, so is the term smart city. The term managed retreat is a fear mechanism to imply that an enemy is approaching, in this case, nature. And they will manage the situation for us via smart cities because it's too much for us to be able to survive on our own. And the term smart city is just quite simply a lie. <laughs> it has nothing to do with superior technology being harnessed for our benefit. It has nothing to do with ease and convenience, well-being, and the advancement of humanity. And it's not going to look anything like the brochures. In fact, if they were to print an honest brochure, it would probably look a lot more like these images that I included in my video on the Shanghai COVID response. It showed how drones and robots patrolled the streets and millions of people were forced into multiple enormous human warehouses with lights that stayed on 24 hours a day, jail cell-like housing, barely any bathroom facilities, leaking roofs, seas of stretches and bunk beds, people begging for food, filth, rubbish everywhere. They were like scenes straight out of a dystopian horror movie. But the globalist leaders of the West were united in their praise of China's response, saying it's the level the West needs to strive for. That should tell you something. <laughs> there was a huge amount of drones used to control the people in China too, not only for surveillance of movement, but also to bring about starvation. Thousands of tons of food was dumped and destroyed as drones would hover over trucks full of food, blaring out demands that they dump their produce outside the city, telling them they were being recorded. And speaking of drones, the Australian military released a video a few weeks ago, February 23, showing robot dogs designed to be able to subdue humans that are now able to be controlled by the minds of their operators. Here they are walking the streets of Washington DC, now, because of the UN's and the World Health Organization's and other Western leaders' positive response to China's actions, I tend to believe that this dystopian AI police environment is more likely to be the reality of smart cities than the utopian picture we're being presented with. All around the world, technologies are already being installed to try and force you to comply with the coming digital system for your very survival. Walmart, Rockland, Ontario, look what they're installing. The sensors are in, fellas. This section here, there's no doors. They've just installed doors. 
and they have sensors everywhere. Look, sensors going right there. See? Food, water, shelter, freedom of movement will no longer be human rights under this system, but instead only given to those who submit. Check, I'll show you this. There, see? There's a beep-boop machine. You don't do beep-boop, door don't open. Most people don't know what's coming. <laughs> These are facial recognition cameras and will only allow the door to open once identification's been obtained. Here's another supermarket. All this is cameras for when they're here, in front of the meat section. And here, in the egg department, all along. These are popping up all throughout Northern America. Doors installed where there used to be none, with facial recognition cameras mounted above them. Since these doors went up, these cameras are here. They're all over the place. And in parts of China, if you don't scan a QR code and provide facial recognition, it's no toilet paper for you. Again, presented as a climate change measure. What an effective way to track people, to literally know when and where they use a toilet and to force them into the system. Because all these systems are going to require a digital ID to use the associated apps. China's digital ID program went nationwide in late 22. And with the added benefit of the social credit system already being so well established there, smart cities are now prevalent throughout China. And what do you know? They don't look like the brochures. They're a great example, actually, of what to expect. Absolutely off-the-chart surveillance. There's literally nowhere you can hide in them. QR scanning and facial recognition is required to enter and exit each zone. It's called geofencing. And it's because of climate change. The smart city police are being issued with all sorts of crazy new technologies to help enforce these new laws, such as facial recognition glasses that can identify anyone within seconds of looking at them, and can even see through a person's efforts to disguise themselves and they can connect to any data requested about that individual, such as credit scores and medical status. And on top of that, there's something called the gate recognition system being used to identify people by the way they walk. Oh, oh well, didn't have nothing about this in the book. Gonna be a bit more challenging with us though than it has been with the Chinese, surely, as they've been programmed for obedience to the state since birth. Even at school, they're taught to move together like this, slowly with tiny steps in absolute conformity with each other. And by the time they're adults, many have completely lost the ability to be able to think for themselves and they behave like mindless robotic slaves to their owners. And we're not that much different here and neither are our schools. Ironically, conformity comes in many different forms. <laughs> but it's the subduing of the human spirit that's allowed the social credit system to be so successful in China. Here we see people happily giving their money to the state, as they do for no other reason than to bump up their social credit scores so that they can take a train ride. Now, 
现在通过做做好让好事，通过这个呃捐款呐、啊、加分呐、啊，我现在高铁票能买了，终于成为正正常人了。So by giving your money and quite literally your blood to the state, that makes you a normal human. Wow. Um, here's a quick word from one of the deranged creatures that helped design this current social credit scoring system on French TV. Yikes. Smart cities will also contain. Is he gone? Ah, <sighs> uh, yeah. Smart cities will also contain integrated weaponry to keep citizens under control. Have a listen to Armin Javi and this snippet from a talk he had with Maria Z. Armin has over 25 years' experience working in Silicon Valley as a video surveillance engineer, and has invested hundreds of hours researching this intended digital ID slavery system ahead of us, which he's calling the final lockdown. Every tree and plant, all of nature is going to be mapped digitally, and eventually we'll be getting pushed into the metaverse. These are called smart lights and smart poles,、uh, which are an integral part of the smart city infrastructure. They all are wirelessly communicate with each other. So it's an open air concentration camp for surveillance, as well as I'll show you, it'll be weaponized, and then they will also host all sorts of sensors in the name of climate change and global warming. They don't even have diffusers on top of them, so you can't look up at these lights. They're designed to make humans look down. There's a, something called a puke ray. It's an LED incapacitator. Where you have this, think of it. This is an LED gun which is able to emit different frequencies of light at a very high rate of change. So, when you do this、um, at a very high frequency with different、uh, lighting, and if there's a human being that's in the vicinity and looking at these lights or near these lights, you can get intracranial damage. You can hurt your spine. You you can get sick. I bet you, you it can even kill you. So these can be used as weapons. These LED incapacitators have been used by militaries for some time. In recent years, the Department of Homeland Security in the U.S. has been funding the refining of this technology so that it can be used in more everyday applications. Lovely. All public documentation about these LED incapacitators describe it as a weapon that can disorient and immobilize its victims, giving them sudden and extreme vertigo and nausea by increasing intracranial pressure. But it's well established that too much intracranial pressure can cause spinal damage and permanent brain damage. And in case you're thinking perhaps Aman was being a bit dramatic when he said that he thought it could potentially also cause death, well, many others, including Cedar Sinai, agree with him. Hmm. Looks like the World Economic Forum forgot to put this little piece of information in the smart city brochures. I think weapons and the streetlights would at least warrant a mention, you know, even just in the fine print. You know, transparency, disclosure, and all that. But that's just me. <laughs> If you scroll through the profiles of smart cities on the World Economic Forum website, you'll see that many of these cities already have these lights installed, and many are in the process of being installed. A few years ago, Christchurch was the first city in New Zealand named as a future smart city. Lucky them! 
This is a fact that the Christchurch City Council makes no bones about. And in accordance with this scheme, almost 40,000 streetlights have already been upgraded in Christchurch to smart city network lights. And the council says here that they hope to have the rest replaced by 2024. Now, although our government says that all the lights on the NZTA's 2022 list of approved luminaires are completely harmless, every one of them has the smart city ready tick, which means they include the hardware and the platform to accommodate advanced smart grid applications able to be added to in the future. Oh goody. These software upgrades will be able to be done remotely and that's part of the danger of smart cities. What we're told about is not where it ends. Take for example, how long did it take for them to message readjust from 20 minute cities to 15 minute cities? And now Melbourne's bragging about how it's aiming to be a 10 minute city and, and now we see the push for five minute cities. I mean, what even is that? Living in your bathroom or something? I mean, we're only told what they want us to know at the time. The software upgrades, the message readjustments will be incremental but rapid. And the final message readjustments will come once the global corralling into smart cities has been achieved. And at that point, it's a bit like the old divide and conquer, isn't it? We could then find ourselves isolated into districts that have ever increasing regulations to the point where they become prisons. A real life hunger games. Well, that's just my positive outlook on it all anyway. <laughs> but you couldn't find a more stark picture of ultimate containment than the Lime City of Saudi Arabia. Back in 2021, Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman first announced plans for this project, a city called the Line. I'm going to the Line. Medina Millionia, with 170 kilos. You'd be forgiven for thinking, this must be hypothetical. But no, this is already well underway. By October 21, earthworks had already begun. It's being proposed as the ultimate solution to urban sprawl, land and carbon footprint, and specifically to transport. The city itself would be sandwiched between two giant walls which extend out across the desert. A high-speed rail system would run from one end to the other, a journey of 20 minutes which will eliminate the need for roads or personal vehicles. Not only will the walls be a whopping 500 metres tall and 170 kilometres long, but they'll also be mirrored so as to minimise their impact on the environment. I don't know how that works exactly. And honestly, I don't care because it's just crazy. The whole thing's deranged. Homes, offices, shops, businesses and parks will all be layered on top of each other, meaning every amenity you need will be accessible within a five minute walk, or parks will be available at a two minute walk upwards. So-called leaked documents, let's face it, probably leaked deliberately to mislead people, speak of robot maids, giant artificial moon, flying taxis, robot gladiators, cameras, drones and facial recognition that will track everyone at all time, free cloud seeding, oh and let's not forget the state-of-the-art medical facilities where scientists can play God and mess up your DNA, you know, all part of the service. You see how they're trying to trick people into believing that these are actually good things? <laughs> 
The renderings of Lion City show a place that's like a sci-fi kind of utopia. But is anyone even asking the important, like really important question here? What if those in charge went a little bit rogue? What if they turned out to be a tad psychopathic and decided to lock the doors? Would it not then become a giant prison in the middle of the desert? And what happens in a cyber crash? Your one means of transport, your entire infrastructure, heck, even your moon goes kaput then. And where's the sun in all this? I mean, you'd never see it unless you were at roof level 500 metres up. There are many other insane smart city projects being worked on around the world, but I have noticed most are in land, which is where they want us, it seems. There are a few close to coastlines, but I do believe we'll see compliance um, a shifting inland and away from the coast because of the sudden and convenient rise in flooding. Flooding that will be aided in many parts by the fact that more dams were removed in 2021 and 22 than any previous year. Many will be forced to retreat to these areas because of new policies arising out of new legislation such as managed retreat and the Climate Adaption Plan and many will be forced to by governmental financial arm twisting. But what awaits inland will not be a better climate. It'll be subject to its own geoengineering and man-made crises. Cyber crashes, spread of man-made viruses, food shortages, absolute soil destruction, poison rain, drought, earthquakes, much more. <laughs> Jeez, I'm fun, aren't I? Um, I'm not trying to be negative, I'm just saying. That's actually what's going on. Um, I mean, is it just me? I mean, does it seem odd to you that this is the time that they choose to completely abandon all fossil fuels? At the very same time that the world is suddenly subject to so many so-called natural disasters. One look at Hawke's Bay should tell you how much use any electrical device is in a so-called natural disaster. A fossil fueled vehicle would get you to safety in such an event, but an electric one couldn't. Couldn't be charged, couldn't even be driven in water. <laughs> The punk, the original climate liar. He's been telling the younger generations of the world that he and God are counting on them to make sure that fossil fuels are completely banned from use and soon. Such a predictable and well-timed message adjustment from we need to reduce fossil fuel usage, like his message a couple of years ago, now we need to abandon it. Here's a World Economic Forum clip talking about how fossil fuels are being banned in many places from 2025. These Dutch cities are banning petrol and diesel delivery vehicles to tackle air pollution and climate change. From 2025, all deliveries must be made in electric vehicles in 14 cities across the Netherlands. It will prevent CO2 emissions equivalent to taking 216,000 cars off the road. And businesses will get to help make the switch with grants of 5,000 euros towards an electric van or lorry. The cities implementing zero emission zones include Amsterdam and Tilburg. Other areas around the world are also banning exhaust fumes. In the U.S., Santa Monica has set up a voluntary zero-emission delivery zone. The UK's first zero-emission street has opened in central London. Beach Street will be closed to polluting vehicles for 18 months. The scheme could expand into London's financial district 
in 2022. What's your city doing to encourage cleaner, climate-resilient transport? Brought to you by people who want to keep you in a 15-minute prison city. The World Economic Forum. Oh, so a totally legit World Economic Forum video, I promise. <laughs> and oh, how it's changed in the last 18 months. This is another good example of the constant message readjustments from these people. As you saw there, people of London were told that ULES or ultra low emission zones may extend into the financial district in 2022. But already in early 23, not only the entire financial district is one giant ULES, but also much further. And as of August 23, every single borough of London will be a ULES. If you drive a vehicle that doesn't meet the emission standards, you'll face a daily charge of £12.50. That's a lot of money, around 25 New Zealand dollars a day that you're just going to have to hand over to the globalists for the permission to drive your own car in London. And it's spreading to most other cities in the UK. Oxford calls it low traffic neighbourhoods. Manchester and Birmingham call it clean air zones or CAS. They adopt different names in different regions. You know, while people are watching out for ULES, they bring in CAS before people can wake up and go, hang on, that's just ULES but with a different name. <laughs> but it's all the same. A system that deliberately slows and congests traffic, records drivers' details in their every movement and demands unaffordable fees to be allowed to move around. Do you see how fast the scheme is moving? Like a virus. A real one this time. That's why we can't decide to stand up once it's already here. It'll be too late then. As I touched on before, something else we need to stand against is the eradication of fossil fuel usage. Can you imagine how this would impact humanity in the face of a full-blown cyber crash? Especially when it morphs into a full-blown cyber pandemic, as World Economic Forum is saying it will? In such an event, power grids over entire nations may go down for a prolonged period of time, and we wouldn't even be able to warm ourselves or cook food if fossil fuels were prohibited and no longer available. Right now, a cyber attack with COVID-like characteristics would spread faster and further than any biological virus. Its reproductive rate would be around 10 times greater than what we've experienced with the coronavirus. COVID-19 was known as an anticipated risk, so is the digital equivalent. Let's be better prepared for that one. The time is now. Right. So, if Klaus is so certain that a massive cyber crash is imminent, well, I guess you can be pretty certain when you've helped plan it, um, well, it would seem kind of weird that him and his buddies would push us into complete dependence upon electricity via a centrally controlled grid for our very survival, when, as he said, that grid's likely to become infected. By the way, integrated into these grids is the capability to switch off certain devices, such as your car key, and also to virtually instantly drain your battery, rendering your car useless. Take a look into what's been called V2G, or vehicle-to-grid technology, something that most of us are probably unaware of, but it's built into all EVs and most charging units, and I believe it's probably a big part of the rush to ban fossil fuel vehicles and push us into EVs. V2G is a system that involves what's called bi-directional charging and it allows the central grid to suck the electricity from your vehicle via your charger. In other words, if you attempt to charge your car but the powers that be don't want you mobile, they can simply reverse the direction of the charge. They say it's a feature to aid the grid in the event of a power blackout or during low energy periods. 
But again, it's another example of the lack of disclosure associated with these new technologies. It essentially means that under a tyrannical government, they could, if they wanted to, render your car inoperable for as long as they want through V2G. They could immobilize a whole car park full of EVs almost instantly and without culpability, just an automatic feature of the charging unit in the event of a blackout. Dangerous stuff. But anyway, why choose the eve of a cyber pandemic to eradicate fossil fuels? I mean, wouldn't we at least keep them as a backup for the cyber crash? It reminds me of how we weren't allowed ivermectin or hydroxychloroquine in the pandemic. Why would they prevent access when they could save lives? So many questions. Maybe we should just bring Klaus on to explain. Hang on, I'll give him a buzz. <laughs> oh, I warn you though, he, he gets super excited when he sees it's me calling. It's, it's a bit embarrassing actually. Oh. Hello! Oh, whoa, uh, hi. Um, just wondering, hey, why are you pushing to have fossil fuels banned when you keep saying there's a cyber crash coming, Klaus? What's going on? We all know, but still pay insufficient attention Ooh, great dramatic, to the frightening clearly. scenario of a comprehensive cyber attack. Yeah, that's what I was going to bring to a complete halt to the power supply transportation, hospital services, our society as yeah. a whole. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's, that's, I get that. That's what I'm saying. Wouldn't, you know, wouldn't it be even worse inside a smart city when the grid goes down? Why not maintain access to fossil fuels? Because that's still work in a cyber crash and, you know, vehicles, cooking, heating, they're essential to survival. So it could be disastrous if people can't heat their homes in the middle of a freezing winter or refrigerate their food. So cool by you know? crisis would be seen in this respect as a small disturbance in comparison yeah that's what i'm a saying major cyber attack yeah so to use the covid 19 crisis as a timely opportunity to reflect on the lessons the cyber security community i, I don't think you're listening to my question and improve our impreparedness for a potential cyber pandemic. Klaus, you're really not listening here. Look, it's, it's like you're just reading one of your hammy scripts again, honestly. You know, we've had this discussion before in a previous video where I actually had to freeze you, remember? And I know you, you didn't like that, but there's only so much super villain raving I can listen to before it starts to get a bit annoying, you know? But I do hear you, you know, COVID was a lesson to prepare us for what's coming. So I guess what's coming must be more lockdowns and as you said already, massive food shortages and power outages when you start your cyber crash slash cyber pandemic that you're cooking up. Basically just a whole lot more of doing whatever you and your sicko mates tell us to do via our governments who no longer serve us but you. Thanks. You've been a great help. You can go now. I'm sorry you had to hear that. It's a bit of a strained relationship to say the least. But speaking of Klaus's sicko mates, the World Health Organization is letting people know in no uncertain terms that it's not only lockdowns in the form of climate protection and cyber crashes heading our way, but we'll also be seeing more health lockdowns, this time on steroids. By means of multiple new international health regulations or IHRs and the 
Plandemic Prevention and Preparedness and Response Treaty, they intend to take human rights abuses to a whole new level with laws that they believe give them authority over our bodies. Isn't it an interesting choice of words actually, treaty? <laughs> it tells you that this is about wanting peace and goodwill for the benefit of humanity with openness and agreement and consent and all that, which is actually the complete antithesis of what it actually is. And if you haven't noticed yet how much the perpetrators of this agenda love to use biblical references, might pay to start paying attention because they're telling you what they're up to and where they're going next. It seems an awful coincidence that the grand delusion and prophecy is brought in by what's named specifically as a global pharmaceutical deception and then a treaty that relates to it is made and then after everything's exposed for what it really is, that treaty is broken by the ones who wrote it. Call me crazy, but I believe the images that they're using and they're advertising are deliberate. Is it? Broken treaty. Why? Oh, and by the way, this time it's not just a pandemic we need to look out for, it's something called a fake. I kid you not, they are mocking us now. Listen to this. A public health emergency of international concern, or a fake, is defined by the IHR as an extraordinary event which is determined to constitute a public health risk to other states through the international spread of disease and to potentially require a coordinated international response. This definition implies the situation is serious, sudden, unusual, or unexpected, that it carries implications for public health beyond the affected state's national borders and may require immediate international actions. A pandemic is something slightly different. A pandemic is typically when there's a new virus that is affecting the world's population. It's very difficult to define once you reach a state when a new virus is a pandemic. The idea of declaring a public health emergency of international concern, which is the highest level of alarm by the World Health Organization under the international health regulations, is to coordinate that immediate action before the event becomes even bigger and potentially becomes a pandemic. In the situation of COVID-19, we are in both a public health emergency of international concern as well as a pandemic. And while we've heard the Director General talk about the ability of the world to come together and end the emergency of the public health emergency at a global level this year in 2023, we may still be in a pandemic for quite some time because this virus is here with us to stay, which means we have to take measured action, we have to improve all of our system to be able to reduce the impact of COVID-19 as we go forward. We will be living with this virus responsibly for the foreseeable future, and that means we need to save as many lives and protect as many people as we can right now using the tools that exist now. Oh, doesn't it make you feel so safe how they're protecting us all so well? Honestly, you can't tell me these people couldn't think of less questionable acronyms than these. They are fully mocking us. Reminds me actually of the acronym they're using for the new UK government funded geoengineering project to put sulfur dioxide up into our stratosphere via balloons. A few scientists said, um, maybe not such a great idea, seeing how sulfur dioxide is so deadly poisonous and all, but the government seemed to think it's a fabulous idea, great use of taxpayer money. Maybe soon they'll start investing taxpayer money into experimenting with arsenic and breakfast cereal, you know, for science and climate change and all that. And regardless of the opposition, 
Several approved proof of concept flights have already taken place since October 21 over the UK and Mexico. Actually, wasn't there a few random balloons floating around a while ago that nobody, including China, seemed willing to take ownership of? Balloons that looked very similar to Project Satan balloons and carrying what was reported to be the same inexpensive level of componentry? Dunno. But with the amount of valid opposition of Project Satan and the clear harm to humanity that it poses, if they couldn't do it legally, they would be likely to just simply find another way to do it, wouldn't they? Just a thought. Uh, why would they use spy balloons when they've already got satellites that do a far better job? And would they really be stupid enough to emblazon them with huge Chinese insignia? Not very spyish, is it? And come to think of it, when you consider that spy balloons are almost always filled with helium, which is virtually transparent and near invisible, isn't it strange how the pictures of the one shot down over South Carolina show a cloud like this? That's not helium. Anyway, uh, back to the cyber crash. <laughs> That's what I was talking about, Klaus and his mates. Yeah, uh, I'm sure we can all find some comfort in the fact that Cyber Polygon are running events to prepare us all for the coming cyber pandemic. Just like Bill had our backs, bless him, with Event 201 right before its hypothetical subject, a global non-existent health pandemic emerged on the earth. Hmm. What would we do, honestly, without these guys? Man, we'd be in such a pickle, wouldn't we? Oh, and the guys at Climate Scope, they're looking after us. I mean, with smart cities becoming 100% electric and all, I guess it's no surprise that the latest Climate Scope report suggests that we're moving into a time when the using of fossil fuels may soon be deemed a criminal offence. From Mike's Beyond Coal campaign that was so incredibly successful in accelerating the closure of dirty power plants. Doesn't make much sense though when you consider how the ever-increasing climate change emissions regulations are forcing companies to outsource manufacture of their products to China and China's notoriously unregulated in regards to emissions. So when you combine that with the transport of these products in and out of China, the overall outcome of these regulations is actually a significant net gain in emissions, not a reduction. So you can't tell me the globalists can't figure that out. Anyway, smart cities. Every nook and cranny of the zone will be saturated with 5G. Or it could be 6G. I don't know. Guess we'll have to wait and see on that one. But none of the technologies being employed in these cities are about the environment. They're all about control. For example, the World Economic Forum are strongly pushing the use of what they call micro-mobility vehicles. Sounds great. Less emissions, less parking hassles. But not only do they run at high speeds with no helmets and available to children, but they also record and send your movements to whoever they wish to. When you scan an e-scooter QR code, you might not realise it, but you're actually hopping onto a two-wheeled data hoarding device that's collecting far more of your personal information than that product really requires. But this is what smart cities and their accompanying technologies are all about. <laughs> so I guess you've got to ask yourself, are you happy to give the details of your movements to a company like Lime Electric Scooters, the world's largest e-scooter company, when its VP is actively involved with the World Economic Forum and its agenda? Existing Amazon drivers are already having a taste of what's to come with smart driver surveillance installed in their vehicles. That little guy is how we are tracked. 
it's probably recording me recording it but it can't hear me so that's nice so it has one camera facing me one camera facing forward and then one camera on each side so if we don't stop at a stop sign like fully stop then we get a violation for that it tracks our speed so we cannot go more than six miles per hour over the speed limit or we get a speeding violation these vans also track our buckle count so it'll count how many times we buckle our seatbelt and if we don't buckle it enough then um or we like miss a buckle then that is a seatbelt violation but also that camera is watching me while I drive, so I cannot do a lot. If I want to sip up my coffee, I have to pull over um, so that I can grab it and drink it, because if I do it while I'm driving, then that's a driver distracted, which is also a violation. I can't touch the center console, or else that is a driver distracted um, violation. One guy was itching his face, his beard, one time, and uh, the camera picked it up that he was on the phone and so he got a driver distracted violation for itching his face. And I cannot unbuckle my seatbelt until I am in park. So yeah, everyone who works for Amazon pretty much hate those little things. But we have to remember it's just for safety. Nice. Just like the vaccine. That was for our safety too. Um, but i got to say, I for one never knew Amazon was such a caring company. To think that they would go to such lengths purely for their employees' safety. Anyway, uh, another new technology we'll see in the coming smart cities is called blockchain and CBDC or Centralised Bank Digital Currency. Blockchain will be the very backbone, the operational system if you like, of the smart city. And if a resident doesn't subscribe to this system and all its requirements, it's looking like they'll have no access to currency. Dr. Pippa Malmgrim talked about blockchain at the 2022 World Government Summit. We are on the brink of a dramatic change where we are about to, and I'll say this boldly, we're about to abandon the traditional system of money and accounting and introduce a new one. And the new one, the new accounting, is what we call blockchain. It means digital. It means having an almost perfect record of every single transaction that happens in the economy, which will give us far greater clarity over what's going on. It also raises huge dangers in terms of the balance of power between states and citizens. In my opinion, we're going to need a digital constitution of human rights if we're going to have digital money. Mm -hmm. Somehow I don't think they're gonna bother with little details like constitutions and human rights. It's so yesterday. Either Pippa is way more naive than she should be at this point, or she's part of the reassurance cast. As Luxon's already made clear, he'll do all he can do to ensure no one receives an income at all if they refuse to take all the jabs on the schedule, both them and their children. And a system such as blockchain makes enforcing a policy like that extremely easy. Everyone will require a digital ID to access CBDC. That won't seem like too much of a big deal for a start, you know, much like a real me account. But this particular account will most likely be linked to your medical status, which is already in a nice tidy little digital package in the recent My Health Account New Zealand initiative. Should any aspect of your medical status, such as your booster history or your child's immunisation requirements, not be up to date, as per the Agenda 2030 immunisation report with its 500 new vaccines, 
then your inbox and your digital ID account may contain a letter informing you that access to your CBDC has been suspended until the matter is amended. Here we see the not so subtle attempt to normalise the term digital identity through the My Health Accounts digital health identity. Not a long step from digital health ID to a full digital ID. Digital Identity is a scheme that's set to be launched in many countries before the end of 2023 and will contain a person's carbon score, punish them accordingly, travel inside and outside of your 20-minute ghetto, I mean city, uh, may well come at a cost and it may even be prohibited if you've created too much carbon in the last few days, even though you've only been allowed to use zero emission vehicles and use LED lights and so on. A lot of Blockchain's carbon credit smart city technologies are already in use, but they're growing rapidly and will come to full fruition inside the smart city. Have a listen to the fantastic Australian Senator, Alex Antic. Australian cities are becoming digital surveillance precincts with so-called smart city programs being rolled out across the country. Invasive technologies such as facial recognition cameras, license plate readers, smart lights, smart poles, smart cars, smart neighbourhoods, smart homes and smart appliances all connected to wireless networks and communicating with each other. So what's wrong with that? Technology is good, isn't it? All this is for your safety, security and convenience, isn't it? Well, let me tell you, your streets are spying on you. Your mobile phone is spying on you, your cities are spying on you, and the infrastructure for future lockdowns is being put into place right now. Don't be fooled. You're being set up to be tracked through your movements and through the future of your digital wallets. By handing over your data, you're handing over the ability to monitor your behaviour, which will soon be turned into a social credit score. Social credit score. Actually, I like how Tucker Carlson explains the new social credit system and its CBDC currency in more layman's terms. CBDC. If that happens, we're done. <laughs> the coming blockchain currency, CBDC, are all about surveillance and control. And by the way, they're all ready to go. Here's well-known American investment banker Catherine Austin Fitz. This is Richard Werner, the top academic scholar in the world on central banking. Here he is in Malmo, Sweden in May. The nature of the CBDC, what, what is it actually going to look like? They never talk about that. Um, but I heard one European central banker tell me what it's going to look like. He saw it um, and it was around this, this large and would be implanted under your skin. The New Zealand Reserve Bank has declared its intention to scrap money as we know it and move to CBDC, which is currently being rolled out all over the world and is now extremely close to rollout date here in New Zealand. It's hard to get an actual number on this, but thousands anyway of ATMs around the world have been removed or simply switched off in the last year or two and banks are folding like deck chairs. Here's Glenn Beck. You might have missed what happened Wednesday afternoon at the Fed. They started their CBDC. Maybe we should start having the conversation of, gosh, this looks like the mark of the beast. And as Noah Harari tells us in his usual unashamed confessionary style, CBDC and digital surveillance are not only designed to integrate into every part of your surroundings, but also into your body which he says here was a big part of what the COVID scam was all about. COVID makes it, it accelerates the process of digitalization and automatization. It legitimizes 
the deployment of mass surveillance even in democratic countries and it makes surveillance go under your skin. Nice. There is one thing standing in the way of blockchain and CBDC really making it to the big time though, and that's the pesky banks. But it's not too much of an issue when you consider that the guys that own most of the banks in the world are also pulling the puppet strings of even the likes of Klaus Schwab. So I guess it kind of makes sense that they're all beginning to collapse, or more accurately, be shut down. I wouldn't be surprised if fiat currency completely collapses altogether soon, as it relies on its government-bound value, which in turn relies on government stability, and as, as you can see, the governments of the world are all yielding, so... And as Klaus has said, it will not go well for the nations that seek to hold on to its sovereignty. Sorry. I'm so bad at accents. Uh, Klaus was sounding a little bit Indian there. Um, I apologise if I've offended any Indian people out there, that was not my intention. Uh, anyway, <laughs> we had Silicon Valley Bank collapse on the 10th of March 23, quickly followed by Silvergate and then Signature Bank. And unsurprisingly, these banks have been told they will not be bailed out by the US Treasury. Well, of course not. They want them gone. So uh, it's emerged, well, actually, they didn't try to hide it even, it seems, that the top executives of Silicon Valley Bank sold their stocks weeks before the crash and staff were paid their annual bonuses early. And other indicators showed that they knew what was about to happen before it even started to topple. So looking a little bit like the weather events, isn't it, really? Not quite as natural as they appear. Or to pave the way for the agenda, in this case, it's One World Currency, CBDC, and it's One World Banking System, blockchain, all controlled by One World Government. It's almost unfathomable to me that the facilitation of so much of this was launched by a fake pandemic and is now going to be given wings by a fake climate crisis. You'd think if all of this is going to be brought in under the banner of protecting people from climate change, that said climate change would be a well-proven theory, right? Well, it's not. Just as they eviscerated the world under the banner of a medical narrative that was completely devoid of science, they now seek to finish the job through another narrative that's also devoid of any credible science. Many highly reputable scientists reject this climate change theory. The World Climate Declaration, which rejects the theory, now has around 1,200 signatories. But just as the medical professionals who rejected the COVID narrative were censored, these scientists have been being censored for many years. And I have to say, if mainstream science was right and the Earth had entered and exited many ice ages and cities like Chicago were under kilometres of ice for thousands of years and then it thawed and froze over again, and a number of cycles and all these extreme temperature changes happened well before fossil fuels were even mined or used and before dairy farms even existed, then that fact on its own would shatter the climate change narrative, as does a swathe of other evidence. Take a look at this picture of the Arctic ice cap. It shows virtually no change between 1991 and 2022. A little bit less here, but a little bit more here, but all in line with the same level of variation that's occurred for as long as recording's been done. It's not melting, and the polar bears aren't drowning. In fact, many scientists agree that the ice is actually getting thicker, and there's more of it than there was a century ago. Here's geologist Tony Heller, an outspoken climate realist who has a great YouTube channel under his name and a wonderful website called realclimatescience.com. 
This map from the University of Alaska shows what they believe sea ice concentration was around Alaska and Siberia during November 1921. And the map on the right from NOAA shows sea ice concentration in the same region at the end of November of this year. From what we've seen, it's pretty clear that there's more ice in both the Western Arctic and the Eastern Arctic than there was 100 years ago. And this graph displays data from the US Historical Climatology Network stations and shows daily average maximum temperatures over the last 100 years. It shows what many geologists are trying to tell us, that temperatures are actually trending very gradually downwards. We're being told to believe that the world is heating, that the oceans are rising because of climate change caused by you and me, all without any solid scientific data. In fact, as Ian Wishart has uncovered recently, missing data at Niwa reveals that evidence relating to the truth about New Zealand climate change is being hidden and appears to be being fabricated. And Philip Duncan from Weatherwatch has also spoken publicly recently, saying that he too has serious concerns about the lack of transparency at Niwa. I must say, I was pretty surprised. Well, actually not really. Uh, nothing much they do surprises me anymore. But just when I learned just how shonky these climate readings are, the very ones used to conclude that the Earth's temperature is rising. As you can see here, on this climatological data map from the US Center for Environmental Information, almost every single temperature sensor used to gather official climate data is located at an airport. So they're including asphalt and jet exhaust fumes in their official climate warming data. I don't know much, but I, one thing I do know is that to read true temperature, the equipment needs to be in a specific environment. In fact, let's ask Google what the best environment for true temperature readings actually is. Okay, hang on just a sec. What is best way to take accurate temperature? Ah! Okay, <laughs> that's not quite what I meant. Uh, perhaps I need to be a little more specific. Uh, let's put an air temperature. Uh, ah, see, there you go. Not over a paved surface there. And not exposed to direct sunlight, yeah. It's not exactly rocket science, is it? We're being denied true science on these matters, again, just as during the COVID saga we're being ostracised for seeking actual scientific evidence, and we're being told to trust only in the one source of truth. Why? Because they need you to believe that events like Cyclone Gabrielle are natural, not engineered, and that not only is managed retreat into smart cities justified, but it's urgent. That's why globalist liars such as Luxon, for example, quickly stamped these events as climate change. There is no doubt Cyclone Gabrielle was caused by climate change, said Luxon, on the day after the cyclone hit. No conversation, no research, no investigation necessary, or even allowed for that matter. What an incredibly confident statement from a man who has no climate or environmental science background whatsoever. As per the globalist script, he claims to know things he couldn't know without open scientific investigation, consistently rejecting and ignoring real science, as does Chris Hipkins. 
This arrogance seems to be a necessary quality in leadership from Stormont these days to enforce the eradication of free speech, free thought and the application of critical thinking. Real science would surely look at the fact that Hawke's Bay, and in particular Esk Valley, has recorded numerous serious flooding events since recording began back in the mid-1800s. There was a similarly severe one in 1938, where there was rainfall of a thousand millimetres in just three days, which is even more than Gabrielle. Wouldn't, wouldn't real science therefore conclude from that that this recent flood is likely to not be as a result of climate change, seeing it also happened 85 years ago when none of the factors accused of causing climate change were even in play? And if an actual scientist or an actual politician, you know, the real ones that still consider truth to be of some importance and still consider themselves to work for the people, well, if one of them were to dare to even question this climate narrative, they'd be quickly shut down, as Maureen Pugh discovered soon after Gabrielle. She was hastily pulled back into the party line by her great leader and mauled by a raft of New Zealand media sites. So, disappointingly, she backpedaled very quickly. What a shame. <laughs> I almost thought we were finally going to hear from our first MP with an actual backbone for a minute there. And cause climate change? Um, I have yet to see the response from James Shaw, where one of our local councillors wrote to him and asked him for the evidence. I regret that my comments this morning were a bit unclear and will have led some to think that I am questioning the core causes of climate change and that is clearly not my position. I accept the scientific consensus that human-induced climate change is real and there is a need to curb greenhouse gas emissions. Why did you say that? Why did this morning did you say that you need evidence that humans are, are contributing to climate change then? This is not my comfort zone. You guys in front of me with cameras and speakers. If only we had even one politician who felt compelled enough by their integrity and the welfare of others to step outside their comfort zone. Look at it, you know, I, this isn't my comfort zone. <sighs> this climate narrative has been something the World Economic Forum and the United Nations have been pivotal in propagating. It's been agenda number one at Davos for many years now, so it obviously plays a big part in their intended takeover. WEF has a number of powerful climate lie pushers in its ranks and they've been working hard for many, many years on this narrative. This nonsense slogan of carbon net zero by 2050, an absolute joke. It's impossible and it's unscientific. Carbon is our friend, not our enemy, just like the climate and nature is our friend and not our enemy. And the 2050 date's been pushed forward now to 2030 and even 2025 in some places all based on lies like this one. Here's a minute from an address by a former UK Green Party member, just explaining a little of what Net Zero is really about. And uh, I know that all the green people here are comfortable with net zero, but if you understood the longer term impl implications of net zero, and I've put, I've given you all the absolute zero document, and I hope you'll, you'll read it because that coloured bit shows you what is to be achieved by 2030. And that means no flying out of U the UK, no ships out of the UK, um, no cars at all. Um, 
and no, um, you know, all wood burners to be ripped out of every home and every gas appliance to be ripped out of every home by 2025. Now, that is a government document, UK fires, absolute zero. And this is where we're heading for in net zero. We will literally be imprisoned on our own island. And I, you know, this is this is what this top down global control is all about. You think it's a green agenda to actually save the planet. It is not. It was implemented at the Earth Summit in 1992 by a bunch of oil billionaires, crooks. And I, I, me. But flying in the face of this truth, we now have leaders of nations with zero expertise in climate science, obediently regurgitating these lies to their citizens and imposing enforcement legislations to try to force people to align with this lie. That's effectively how the World Economic Forum works as a powerful influencer. If you take a look at the guest list for the last Davos summit, You'll see it was full of names of some of the most influential and diabolical forces in the corporate, governmental and non-profit world. Director of the FBI, CEOs of Amazon, BlackRock and Pfizer, top officials from the Gates and Soros networks, publisher of the New York Times. World Economic Forum, through its annual Davos summits, acts as the policy and ideas generator for the global ruling class and it's completely closed to outsiders. It's a fanatical, political organisation masquerading as a neutral entity. Their goals are to centralise power, giving it to the hands of a few hand-picked global elites. This plan is obviously so tyrannical and off the charts that the only way to sell it to the world is to disguise it as the only means to save the world from disaster. And what could work better than global pandemics and false climate emergencies? Other false flag events thus far have only been successful in rallying national panic and creating a national misguided united front against a false enemy. That, that doesn't quite work for the, for the globalists and their one world government intentions. So they're now presenting a global catastrophe to subdue the entire world in fear united in this deception. They're trying to convince the entire world that they need to unite under their guidance and their covering to be able to overcome this, the mother of all crises. But the reality is there's not one true climate scientist amongst the ranks of WEF, no one who's actually able to prove even the existence of this climate emergency. I'm sure you've noticed the fake climate crisis response mantra of build back better being chanted by leaders across the world. Our own Chris Hipkins noticeably using the phrase many times in the wake of Cyclone Gabrielle, partly to affirm the idea that we're now entering the climate emergency that we've been warning us of, I guess, uh, but also to inform us that these globalists have got this under control, so we just need to take our hands off and just trust them. They announced this climate disaster solution plan and fundamentally the main framework of the smart city back in 2017 under the name of the Build Back Better Plan. World Economic Forum seems to claim it as its own, but it's interesting if you trace the slogan back to before the World Economic Forum used it, you'll see it was actually first used by the World Bank, who invests heavily in the World Economic Forum. Building Back Better was the name of a plan presented in June 2018 that the World Bank contributed to, a plan that specifically caters to post-disaster reconstruction of cities by building them back better into smart cities. But to be able to apply the Build Back Better plan, a region needs to have been devastated by a catastrophic disaster of some kind. And in that context, 
I do find it quite a coincidence that Gazi and Tet Turkey, the region worst hit by the Turkey earthquakes, is part of the global group of G20 specially selected pioneer smart cities. But it's not just Gaziantep. This is actually a very disturbing pattern that's happening in a lot of places. Sao Paulo, uh, Brazil's most populated city, has been getting lots of brownie points from the World Economic Forum recently as it strives to reach its Paris Climate Agreement objectives. And it too has been hit with record rains in February 23, which has left it looking very much like Hawke's Bay. Just like here, utter devastation has been inflicted on the areas outlining the city areas rich in natural resources that have now been rendered useless under meters of mud. Just like here, their governments are already talking about building back better and managed retreat. Just like here, the locals are saying the government's withholding hell. And that the death toll, which is officially 72, is being severely understated. And it's all very similar to Lismore in New South Wales, Australia too. It's also being designated as a future smart city, a pioneering guinea pig region actually. I'm sure the locals would have been thrilled to see their town called an incubator, a test bed and a living lab for smart city goals in the 2021 Lismore Regional Action Plan. Like the rest of the world, they were given no say in the matter. On a side note, the population forecast for Lismore reflects the pattern shown in other smart city population forecasts. An interesting pattern when you consider that the annual trend thus far has been an increase globally of about 0.5% to 4%. But here in Lismore, we see that between 2016 to 2021, there's an increase of around 4% as normal. And then between 21 to 26, we see a decrease of 0.5%. And then between 26 and 31, this decline more than doubles to a decrease of 1.1%. Then between 2031 and 36, the level of decline doubles again to 2.2%. Now, if this pattern was to continue of nearly doubling the decrease every five years, it wouldn't take long at all for the population to decrease enormously. I can only suspect that the global forecast population decreases may have something to do with a sudden and severe rise in all-cause mortalities, as well as the deliberate destruction of human fertility through poisonous fake vaccines, for example, or other big pharma concoctions that cause disease or deterioration, or the withholding of infective cancer medications, or the ever-growing abortion rate, encouraged from a government level, as they're now also encouraging voluntary euthanasia. Or maybe through the deliberate damage to human health delivered through food, soil, atmosphere poisoning, who knows? <laughs> they're coming at this thing from many different angles. But back to Lismore. When smart city announcements were quietly made, the locals protested, objecting to the fact that they had no say in this direction. But as usual, in this new totalitarian climate, their voices counted for nothing. It was similar in Oxford, where protests were loud and strong in their objection to the town becoming a smart city, but their voice completely ignored by the powers that be. No one has been consulted about it, and if they have and raised an issue, it's been ignored. It's showing the lack of democracy we have in this country. 90% of the Oxford population formally voted against becoming a smart city, but this hasn't even slowed procedures. So personally I'd say it's not a lack of democracy, it's a complete absence of democracy. Democracy has left the building and it's the same around the entire world.
Although Oxford was signed up to the Smart City program back in 2015, in line with typical WEF rebranding techniques, they began the initial rollout under the more placating title of LTNs or Low Traffic Neighbourhoods. But residents weren't stupid enough to fall for that. They knew that this was simply the first increment of a scheme to achieve globalist control. And so when the bollards and barricades started popping up around town, the good old Oxfordshire no-nonsense welcoming committee was right there to greet them accordingly. Unfortunately, they plan for such resistance and use it to their advantage to make it appear as if their heavy-handed solutions are the people's own fault. But it's not only the bollards they object to, but also the enormous amount of surveillance cameras that now watch their every move. This is spreading throughout many parts of England now, particularly London, but all the way up to the north. This video from Leeds. Look what's popping up everywhere now. They must be doing these through night. Right, that says Traxis on it, so obviously that's to do with tracking you. There's one there, there's one over there, and there's one there. Right, these are popping up everywhere, people, all over Leeds. Me and my pal have drove round. Seacroft, Gibson, Harrells, Oakwood, round here. They're absolutely everywhere, people. This is your social credit score system. Your, your, your grid that's part of your 15-minute city it's going to be attached to your digital ID and your central bank digital currency so once you go through this and they don't like it it's going to scan you and they're going to find you and take it straight out of your digital wallet it's all linked to 5g as well because that's that's what the grid is which is going to be linked to all the led lights up there everything's going to be linked there's a big massive grid a proper proper digital prison there you go another one what's it saying here CCTV in operation for the purpose of collecting roadside video footage for retrospective analysis to establish traffic flow statistics. If it's for traffic flow, why have you got one there and one just there? You don't need all that. There's another one on that corner as well, on that post. These things are everywhere, people. We need to stand up against this too, innit? They're going to monitor everything you do everywhere you go. You're not going to be able to go anywhere soon enough, people, because they're going to trap you in your own little neighbourhood. And then what are you going to do? What are you going to say to your kids, people? It's now right on his doorstep, look. What are we going to do? Come on, people, rise up. Thankfully, many do understand how urgent and how serious this actually is and that it is basically now or never and they are starting to rise up. Push it! Push it! I push it!
They'll tell you it's for climate change. It's not for climate change. It's not for air pollution. It is solely to control the public. The controversial LTNs have attracted huge outcry since being introduced in Oxford last year. The scheme's aim is to create neighbourhoods where essential facilities are accessible by a walking distance of up to 15 minutes. But the concern is that people will be confined to where they live. In addition to the LTNs, which have been repeatedly vandalised since last summer, traffic filters are set to be trialled in six locations next year. Cars will be fined if caught driving through certain areas unless they have a permit. The council believes LTNs and traffic filters create safer and quieter streets, but protesters here believe they cause more congestion and pollution and threaten the livelihood of businesses. Having spoken to local people, local businesses, they don't want this. This is affecting people's businesses. People are having to shut businesses, in fact. 100-day permits will need to be purchased to be able to drive and park their own cars. Locals fear that not only the cost, but also the conditions on these permits will continue to rise and may only be available for electric vehicles and even only to vaccinated drivers once the next variant lie is launched. The Oxfordshire Council has also revealed that these barricaded zones will be surveilled by police and that non-compliance will come at the cost of monetary penalties. Not only are they going to have to pay to travel, but also to park outside their own homes. I live in Oxford in the UK. Um, I went to visit some family members today to find out that my family are not able to park outside their house without a permit, their own home. I do believe it's £60 a year. What kind of tyranny is this? And if your family go to visit you for more than two hours, they also have to have a permit to go and see their own family. What is this? £60 to park outside your own house in your own car. And if your family come to visit you, you've got to pay for them as well £60. To stop us from talking to each other as a family. How does that affect the climate? All of this climate change rubbish is to control us. Wake up. This is just the start. This is coming to your city too. And it's all the poor areas. My family live in the poor area of Oxford. They've got to pay to park their car outside their house. And for their family members or friends to come and visit them, they've also got to pay. But it's not happening in North Oxford. There's no LTNs going to North Oxford where the well-heeled live. The buses are being cut from all the poor areas and they're saying get a bus. This isn't about climate change, this is about control. Claude Schwab and his gang. Wake up, because it's coming to your city next. It's horrendous here. Businesses are going to the wall and everyone's arguing and they love that. Please stand up and take our country back before it's too late. Down in London, Mayor Sadiq Khan has opted for the name of ultra-low emission zones, or ULES, instead of low traffic neighbourhoods. And he's fervently and unashamedly going about the business of deliberately making the poor poorer and the very rich richer, completely ignoring the voices of the people along the way. By the way, fun fact, Sadiq used to be the defence attorney for Zacharias Massawi, one of the so-called terrorists involved in the so-called 9-11 attacks. He actually has an extensive history of involvement with Islamic extremists and terrorists and overt anti-Semites. And now he's Mayor of London, <laughs> actively going about implementing globalist agendas. Be fun to join the dots on that one.
Last week he was booed and shouted at in a public meeting when he said this to ULE's opponents. You're in coalition with Covid deniers. You're in coalition. You may not like it. You may not like it. You're in coalition with the far right. In this next clip, Jeff of YouTube's Jeff Buys Cars runs through the council's information about the ULES scheme. He has a great channel, very helpful in explaining these things to the public because as he says, they're made to be deliberately confusing and complicated to deter people from understanding or challenging them. Traffic related air pollution has remained consistently above legal limits, harming the health and well-being of all Londoners, particularly children. And I've written next to that, proof. Because as we well know from Sadiq Khan's recent actions, he just makes the numbers up as he goes along. If he wants to think that 40,000 people have died from air pollution, then that's what he says. But there's no evidence to back it up. Freedom of information requests. You asked how many deaths are recorded in London as a direct result of car emissions. We said, thank you for your inquiry. One. There's one. Between 20... Car dependency has led to a decline in physical activity and social connectivity. And next to that, I've quite simply written, balls. You can blame social media for that. People would rather talk to each other through their phones than go and talk to people. The dominance of cars and other vehicles in London's roads blights the public realm and deters people from enjoying active lifestyles. They're saying the same thing, so I've just drawn an arrow on that one to where I wrote balls earlier on. It says it replaces a multitude of charges with a single system that is easy to understand and use. And next to easy to understand and use, you can see I've written, so is a cage. Uh, it tackles both congestion and pollution at the same time. The congestion that is being caused by the fact that they're putting planters on the streets instead of letting the roads flow freely, and the pollution that they don't have the evidence to prove that it is actually increased because all the scientists seem to say that it's decreased. Apart from on the tube where it's terrible, which is where they want everybody to go. Um, it ensures that everyone that contributes to congestion and pollution pays rather than those within the narrow boundary of current schemes. What they mean is not just cars. This is no longer about just cars. This is about you and your bike. This is about you and your tractor. This is about you and your electric scooter. This is about you and your horse. All of you need to now use the same app to be tracked by the same cameras to pay the same charges as those of us who own cars. It's about movement. They want you to explore journey options, compare the costs and benefits, time, environmental, health, money, across the full range of modes. Private car, car club, car sharing, ride hailing, bus, tube, train, bike, hire cycling, walking. Do you see what I mean? That this is no longer just about cars. This is you having an app on your phone to allow you to go anywhere. They want you to be able to pay for your journeys across the full range of modes. So you're not just paying for your car or your tube. Through a variety of payment mechanisms, including prepay, pay-as-you-go and monthly billing and a chip in your arm. I, that's not in there. I added that bit in. Next bit I've highlighted is the section on a new user platform. So this is talking about what it's going to be. And as we know, it's going to be an app on your phone, which will be connected to your digital ID. And that's going to be in place by December 2023. Uh, they want you to register for a personal travel account. Personal travel account. Let those words sink in. 
Oh, have you registered for your personal travel account? Make sure you register for your personal travel account by the 1st of January 2024 or you won't be able to go anywhere. Finally, the current charging scheme does not fully compensate for the negative impacts of vehicle usage which harm the poorest and most vulnerable in society the most. What? What are the negative impacts of vehicle usage? Pollution? Well, we've already proven that you don't have the data to back up the fact that it's more polluted. And these things harm the poorest and most vulnerable in society the most. I know, let's come up with a new road charging scheme then, like ULES expansion for example, which we know targets the poorest and most vulnerable in society the most. Because rich people will just pay the charge. So, what we're proposing in those eight points is a scheme that charges you by the mile for the amount of distance covered that is not necessarily to do with movements in a car, which is linked to you as an individual, charged based around specific but very vague objectives where you have to verify your journey on an app which is monitored by roadside cameras for enforcement and based on a system of mobility credits. Can you see where this is going? Imagine when your digital ID is linked to your City Move account. So you use your digital ID to use your central bank digital currency to buy your digital mobility credits to allow you to move around your city. In London Assembly representative Peter Fortune had some things to say about Sadiq Khan too. That's why. That's why the cameras were ordered before the consultation even started, because the journey here is once he's bled you dry with his ULEZ over the next two years, once people have taken out loans, once people have gone out of business, then road user charging is going to come in and there's going to be a whole other level of charge. This needs to stop and it needs to stop now. I guess that explains why the facade called a public consultation period is always so short on these things. If the cameras were ordered before the consultation began, then what the people said was never really going to make any difference, was it? But again, I would like to swing back around and take a look at the plight of Lismore, the region touted as Australia's smart city living lab. Around the world, we're seeing the Smart City Initiative, presented as a response to a climate crisis, being rolled out with such incredible, almost psychic, preemptive time and location synchronicity to natural disasters in those same regions. For example, just a few months after Lismore's Smart City guinea pig status was revealed, it suffered one of Australia's worst recorded flood disasters, with a series of floods that occurred from uh, February to April 2022. Just like here in New Zealand, the government failed to evacuate the people despite clear weather warnings. Just like here, the people claimed that there appeared to be a downplaying of the death toll and a serious lack of government assistance. Uh, for a long time, the Australian government refused to even send in the army to help. This all bears a striking resemblance to some of the facts written in a press release from David Seymour of the ACT Party on the 20th of February 2023. Two weeks after the cyclone, he wrote, more than 6,200 defence personnel were involved in MIQ, yet the Napier Mayor told media this morning that her requests for military assistance have been turned down. How can the government justify having an army available to stand at hotel doors, but not out in a cyclone-ravaged community? The Defence Minister needs to invoke Section 9 of the Defence Act. This means the military can assist the police with civil powers. 
looting gangsters might not think they're so tough when they meet the NZDF. Despite the cries of residents in the area for protection against looting and gang intimidation and theft, which was rife, more than 600 police were sent to the parliament protest where there was no real citizen violence and no loss of life, and yet only 100 were sent to Hawke's Bay where people were in dire need of help. You know, it's almost as if our government and so many others around the world are deliberately provoking their own people and allowing tension to escalate. Could it be that stirring up anger and desperation amongst the people is actually part of the plan? If society was to revolt against the government as much as I wish we would, it would offer the perfect justification to move another step towards taking total control. Anyway, back to Lismore. <laughs> At the time of the Lismore floods, I was working for an Australian news group and I heard first-hand reports of people having to crowdfund to pay for helicopters to rescue elderly and disabled people and trapped in homes full of water many days later because the government refused to send help. And in the immediate aftermath, they also had to crowdfund for their basic needs to be met due to the absence of government support. Another scenario that was similar to Hawke's Bay was that when generous Australians attempted to donate, they were told that their donations should only be made to a specifically set up fund, set up and controlled by the government, or through a charitable organisation working in direct partnership with the government. Just like here in New Zealand, they were told not to give items, but to instead send money and that the government controlled agency would apply it where they saw fit. Strangely enough though, of the 640 million raised for the Australian 2020 bushfire catastrophe, another so-called climate crisis with a litany of dubious circumstances, those affected say that 500 million never made it their way and it effectively went AWOL. Again, these donations were only payable to government-controlled funds and agencies partnering with the government, such as the Red Cross, who feebly explain here why of the 115 million donated to them, only 30 million would be spent on immediate relief. During the Lismore crisis, I heard repeatedly that when people posted offers of help or tried to organise help on social media, it was strongly shadow banned. And this is something I personally witnessed in regards to Cyclone Gabrielle too. Friends posts that never made it past their own page while anything unrelated went out unhindered. We know our government has access to the Facebook takedown portal and you have to ask yourself, if this was censoring, why would they not want help getting to those who need it? And a year later, the plight of the people appears to mean nothing to the government. They've been left to recover on their own and many have said now that they feel as if they and their homes were simply furniture that needed to be moved out of the way for the Smart City Build to commence. Yeah, I was living in my car, I asked for emergency accommodation, they said, oh no, you've got to be actually uh, on the street and so I didn't meet the narrow criteria of being emergency housing. The infamous Resilience New South Wales Agency has since been disbanded after angry locals and two inquiries exposed its appalling response. Strangely devoid of government intervention. It was remarkable. But something that's very much not been abandoned is the plan to build back better, to rebuild Lismore into the smart city that it's been set apart to be. And perhaps that's a task that will be easier now, now that the canvas has been cleared somewhat.
Speaking of clearing canvases, I personally hold an evidence-based belief that the Christchurch earthquakes of 2011 were geo-engineered to clear the way for surveillance and control technologies to be integrated as part of the Smart City rebuild, in line with its premier Smart City of New Zealand status. And yes, earthquake generation is very much an available and well-documented capability. All you need is seismic generating equipment, basically. And there was a world-class seismic generator on board the Arayon, which happened to be parked in Christchurch waters at the time of the earthquake, along with her sister ship, the Laura Bassey, which is known widely as the cyclone ship, because tornadoes, cyclones and hurricanes seem to follow her wherever she goes. Interestingly, both of these ships were also parked in Napier waters on the night of Cyclone Gabrielle. But that's a video for another time. Many areas of Christchurch were red zoned, declared by the government to never be inhabitable again. But now the government's gifted much of this land to a globalist controlled Maori Trust in a move that's nothing short of theft of public and private assets. And this trust is now building houses on the land conveniently in accordance with smart city guidelines. It's a great example actually of how this proposed co-governance is about using kūpapa Māori to achieve globalist agendas. We see it again here in these scripted articles, again cloaked in environmental reform, this time following the Auckland floods a few days before it was Hawke's Bay's turn. They report a sudden cry for Three Waters reform to take place urgently as a result of the flooding caused by climate change. But as we know, Three Waters, aka Five Waters, is more about handing over New Zealand's resources to globalist interests, removing our access to clean, healthy water and taking control of all our basic resources, so often found in our coastlands and farmlands, and about managed retreating the people into small, controlled inland areas. Obviously, the vast majority of rural people aren't going to come into smart cities willingly, and my opinion is that geo-engineered weather disasters are being perpetrated to aid in shifting people into these smart cities. I'm sure we'll also see a lot more persuasion in the form of removing amenities in rural areas too, but weather events are much faster and more effective in moving people. And with the help of the Managed Retreat Plan and the Build Back Better Plan, which just happened to be sitting in the top drawer ready to go, kind of like the vaccine was, well, now any disaster, be it a pandemic or a weather disaster, a recession, a banking collapse or a cyber crash, well, they're not disasters at all. They're all just golden opportunities to reset our world, to enter into that great reset also called the New World Order by the World Economic Forum themselves back in 2018. After this deliberate reveal of their true agenda and its true name, they then officially presented it to the world under the more innocuous name of the Great Reset in 2020. But make no mistake, as has been made clear at the last couple of World Government Summits, at a governmental level, this Great Reset is still very much being called by its true name, which is the New World Order. All of this chaos has been rained down upon us by criminal organisations, globalist juggernauts like the UN, World Economic Forum, who are pretty much one and the same nowadays. Not only are they criminal, but so many of the organisations and individuals they work with are also criminals. I mean, the UN approved Pfizer to inject the world with its untested drug, a pharmaceutical company that a few years before received the biggest criminal fine in history or look at the hand-in-glove relationship that the UN and WEF have with the World Health Organization. 
Its director, Tedros Gabriasis, who is now at the helm of the treaty that seeks to claim legal authority over your body, who's on the board at the UN and also a major contributor to the World Economic Forum, well, he is an absolutely monstrous criminal. He can't even walk around safely in his own country because well, they have a bit of a beef with him. Something to do with massive genocide, horrific war crimes and much more. None of these criminals are elected by us, the people. They have elevated themselves by means of their oligarchy above humanity, above governments, above truth and justice. How come they never mention that the head of this coming house treaty is quite literally a genocidal maniac? Through fake climate change, fake pandemics, fake wars, hidden genocides, cyber crashes and the aliens on our doorstep soon probably, it's all nothing more than a constant theatre of man-made crises engineered to usher in a one-world government and globalist oligarch rule. We cannot be fooled by the smiling faces on the ads. This is what it really is. They do not intend to ever ease up on the drawing in of the net. And if we allow ourselves to be duped by the incremental strategies, well, we all know what happens to the frog who doesn't do something before the water gets too hot. He gets boiled. Take a tiny glimpse into what happened to the residents of Shanghai last year once they allowed themselves to be locked inside their apartments. The people were literally starved, parents dragged off and little children left alone. Pets were brutally slaughtered, just exterminated en masse. People were dragged from their homes, forced into camps and told that they would never be allowed out until they took severe. Public suicides were rife, with people jumping out of their buildings all over the place. You can look at a previous video I made about this called the Shanghai Horrors if you want to learn more about that. This photo here from the lockdown shows the results of an apartment fire that killed 10, half of them children and injured nine because they were not only locked in the building but welded, as many were, for pandemic protection. Even though there was virtually no cases of COVID within the entire city, even the country. And the fire engine, which attempted to help, was blocked by pandemic barrier control. Couldn't even get close enough to be able to douse the flames. While the screams of children rang from the fire, and nobody has ever been held to account for that. The only reason that I bring all this China stuff up is because Biden, Gates, Fauci, Soros, all the globalist scum publicly praised the Chinese government for these actions. Actions that were nothing short of mass murder. They openly said that they wished the West would respond like China just had. Here's Tucker Carlson outlining the implications of those statements. Obviously, it's not about COVID. Let's stop pretending Shanghai does not have a COVID crisis. Effectively, our leaders are defending what China is doing. But according to Tony Fauci, there is, quote, nothing wrong with the Chinese government lying about COVID. There's certainly nothing wrong with starving the population of Shanghai. In fact, Shanghai may be a model. A longtime Harvard epidemiologist just wrote an op-ed explaining that we should all be grateful for the atrocities the Chinese government is committing in Shanghai tonight because they're in, quote, everyone's interest. A health security expert called Nicholas Thomas just told CNN that Shanghai is an inspiration to the world's leaders. We're just beginning to see the outlines of the repression that COVID has made possible. That's the point. And if you want what the future looks like, you can look at China and shiver. So to conclude, 
those that praise China's horrific actions are the very same psychopaths wanting to put you into a 15-minute smart city and telling you to trust them, it's for your own good. We must stand against this for our children's sake. We must rise up and expose their lies loudly and boldly and intelligently and resist their agenda whenever and wherever we can. Do not be intimidated by these lunatics or the system. That's exactly what this imposter is trying to do with this whole hellish vibe that he's manufacturing here. It's, but I do agree with him on his speech title though. Battle for the soul of the nation. Damn straight it's a battle for the soul of every person on earth. But they ain't getting mine. They don't intimidate me one bit. They are not the most high. Anyway. Thank you so much for watching. That was a bit of a long haul, I know. But I just think it's something that we really need to get serious about, learn about and prepare for. But thanks again. And I think I'll leave the last words to those fighting for their freedom in Oxford. This is not about science. It's got nothing to do with science. It's got nothing to do with clean air. It's got nothing to do with the environment. It's got to do with power and control. You've got to have a pushback, and it's got to be a visible pushback. It's all well and good signing documentations to say we don't want this or whatever else, but when people actually come and put boots on the ground, it sends a massive message back to the councils, the government, the police, anybody else who wants to implement these kind of things on us. We had the lockdowns, we had the injections. Now we've got low traffic neighbourhoods and 15 minute neighbourhoods, uh, which are coming out of the World Economic Forum. It's all part of Agenda 2030. It might look different, but it's all part of the same agenda. After a 90% vote, people have rejected the idea of a 15 minute cities. Yet the council have turned around and said, we're doing it anyway. They did it in money as well. They put all the signs up, all the metal signs, all the cameras, and then we kicked off, and now they've all got signs on them saying under review. It's bullshit, they're obviously gonna keep them, otherwise you take them down. They're just gonna keep pushing and pushing. It's just like, we think we take one step forward, but really, it's yeah. the illusion. Yeah, yeah, I know what you mean. So like, we all thought we did really well with the NHS. We did stop the vaccines for the NHS, but I believe if you were to sign up to the NHS now, you have to be double jabbed. Yeah. So we didn't really, yeah. you've got to be clever. You've got to be clever. It's a very, very, very clever war we're in. Yeah. This reminds me of when we are all out protesting about the lockdowns. Is it safe to say that this is all connected in some weird way? Oh, 100%, the whole thing is climate change, lockdowns, um, everything is a scam. There's going to be one of everything, one government, and people need to seriously, seriously wake up. This is not something you can just wait for and go, oh, I'll help down the line when it's time, or when it, when it affects you. People need to start caring now. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks, Sean. Climate change is a hoax. <laughs>